everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Carnegie Talks Tech. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be talking about the latest advances in the technology industry, including mobile communications, satellite, IoT, and lots more. We'll discuss how these technologies are transforming the way businesses and people interact with each other every single day, as well as talk about what it takes to become a success in the industry. In this first episode, we're talking about something that's near and dear to the hearts of the folks at Carnegie Technologies and to so many in the technology industry in general, and that's innovation and how to create an environment and culture that fosters innovation. We talked with Peter Feldman, Chief Operating Officer of Carnegie Technologies, about how companies successful in innovation are built and run. He likened his strategy for teaching innovation to showing someone how to grow a plant. He said, I can't tell you that plant will grow, but I can teach you how to cut it, trim it, and help you tend to it by giving it the love and the care that it needs. He also talked about how most successfully innovative companies are built on a combination of passion, smart people, and encouraging collaboration. So join us on our first episode today. So today we're going to be talking with Peter Feldman. He's the Chief Operating Officer of Carnegie Technologies, and we'll be talking about how he has worked to build and operate a company based on innovation, how he helps shape the corporate culture around that unifying idea, and what steps he takes to make sure the company and its team members continue to always stay innovative. Hi, Peter. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to see you. Excited to have a little conversation here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I read a quote the other day from the 20th century physicist William Pollard when I was doing research for this podcast. He said, learning and innovation go hand in hand. The arrogance of success is to think that what we did yesterday will be sufficient for tomorrow. Peter, do you agree with that statement? Yeah, largely. I definitely agree with that quote. Uh, The way that I think about it is you can be very successful for some period of time with a certain team, with a different team. Uh, but innovation itself never sleeps, right? You you can't look at your past track record and think that going forward, you're just going to recreate it. Sometimes you need different people. Sometimes you need different thought processes. But generally, the, the point of the quote, I think, is that you can't sleep on uh, what you've done in the past. Yeah. So, so speaking of sleep, I know a lot of people have techniques they use for when ideas pop into their head. Um, I keep, I use the notepad on my iPhone regularly, and I'm one of those people that pop up in the middle of the night with a, with a thought of an, what I like to think are innovative thoughts. And I write them down on the notepad of my iPhone. Do you have something similar that you do when yeah, I try to. I, I use either notes as well if I'm in a location like sleeping, or if I'm at an airport or remote or whatever. And I also use a diary, a book that I, I keep, and then of course, uh, you know, any other type of tool on my computer. But generally, I collapse them all to documents that I I manage. I'm a little bit uh, organized and, and anal in that re- regard. <laughs> but uh, you, you got to collect the information wherever you can, however you can, just so you can move it digitally later to keep it organized. I agree. Now, do you think the, you know, as chief operating officer, you are entrusted to make sure the organization is running according to plan, obviously, um, from an HR perspective, as well as the corporate culture. Do you think that an environment can be created 
to foster innovation or do you just think it's something that's inherent in individuals? Yeah, so I think that the answer to that is in an, an environment can be created to do to you know for more innovative productivity. I think that you can't necessarily uh, just snap your fingers or there's a recipe that makes that happen, but you can put yourself into a position um, for a culture of innovation. And you could do that. I look at it the way I look at culture in general, which is you, as a management or some kind of leader, you can't actually, uh, you, you have to, the only way you can do that is to tend to a plant, for example, the way you can cut and trim leaves. I can't tell you how that plant's going to grow, but I can definitely tell, help you build a healthy plant uh, by t- t- tending to it and giving the love and care that it needs. And I think that's generally how uh, successful companies are built. I don't think it's this rigid process of how you do things or you, there's this less, this, this particular plan to creating uh, innovation, but it has to be about passion. It has to be about smart people. I think uh, generally you do need to hire folks who think that way, but you don't. Anybody can come up with any type of innovation at any time. And I think the other big piece to all this is, is allowing people to collaborate and encouraging that collaboration um, and small teams, big teams, those things, things can be thought of and then they can be refined. And the littlest thing, as we've seen his time and time again, can turn into a big innovation um, just from one little tweak to something that was built for an entirely different purpose. Right. So that so you're talking about identifying and hiring people who fit within that innovative spirit. What do you what are some of the characteristics or traits that that you look for in from a hiring perspective that indicate to you that there there's an innovative spirit there? Can you pinpoint one? Sure. Ironically, it goes a little bit to your past quote. You you do look for people who have been a part or a historical track record of working in innovative companies and being heavily involved there. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be that way for you in the future, but it's a good head start. I think that you, you look for open people. You look for people that are risk takers, if you will. I think that a lot of companies, even companies that were successful when they were younger or younger as a company, as they get more and more comfortable and budgets and things of that nature start to take place and you start to put butts in seats, as it's called, uh, risk becomes more of a factor in decision making uh, in terms of innovation. You may not want to take a risk because if you're wrong, you may be, you mean your job may be in jeopardy or your groups, your group may be in jeopardy or your funding may be in jeopardy. Um, I think that is a dangerous, dangerous way to live. And that's why some big companies become less innovative when they get larger. Oh, Peter, I think you're spot on because as a as a publicist for many years, I've worked with companies of all stages and I've taken them from startup to emerging growth to established companies. And the more bureaucracy, the more approval steps, the the larger the hierarchy of management goes, you're right, people, people are afraid to take those risks and companies in general, when you get a legal, you get a legal team involved. (laughs) That's usually when a lot of the creativity goes out the door when you've got lawyers telling you what you can and cannot do. Um, Yeah, a lot of times, sorry, I was gonna say a lot of times you'll see companies that are larger try to create different processes or different little groups to do some new initiative. And they do that with the idea of trying to, you know, bring back or hearken to the old days of innovation and startup. And uh, sometimes that works, actually. But other times, it's not necessarily about the size. It's about 
you know, the way in which you foster and allow risk taking to, to occur. So let's talk about that for a little bit. You you touched on it before. You talked about creating a collaborative environment, um, and that's one of the things that helps foster innovation. Um, is that something that you do at, at Carnegie, and and you see that being successful? And how can other companies? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I have a I have a long history of athletics in my life. Uh, big soccer player, basketball when I was younger. And the way I look at teams is exactly the way you look at an athletic team, right? Teams, if you could hire five LeBron James and put them all uh, on one basketball team, they'd be pretty effective probably. If you put a LeBron James and a Seth Curry and a different type of player on those teams, you'll be even more effective because everybody's playing their role. Now, you want strong players and you know all-stars, if you will. But really, uh, a lot of the best athletic teams are are the, the final piece, the missing piece at the end, is that journeyman, as they call it, somebody who's pretty good, but they fit a certain role and they don't need uh, the same kind of uh, innovation or attention or something along those lines. So building a team is key. You need to know how to put together teams that have you know the, the strong leader, the, the the person that has really good at researching, good at another person who's good at implementing. Uh, somebody who's going to come up and think outside the box. You need all those different things together to be success- successful as a group, in my opinion. So interesting. So, so a good, a good operations manager or entrepreneur of a new organization essentially plays the role of a coach, huh? A team coach. Uh, you, you want to go deeper than that? I think that every leader is, is really a coach, right? I mean, our, all, if you become a leader, you're ostensibly you've either gone that way because you've been successful at some discipline. Um, or, you know, you just wanted to go on that track from the beginning of your career. But at the end of the day, you're doing that because you are a leader, right? You are, you are a leader, which is a coach and you're taking people, um, you're trying to get the best out of them and you're trying to also teach them and make them better along the way. So if you've done both those things, you're going to be, have a much higher chance of being successful and no matter what you do. And that's kind of been my whole career. I, I, I grew up, uh, my first beginning of my career was in the early nineties, late eighties. And I don't know if you remember, but back in those days, the, uh, the the defense industry was doing lots of layoffs in Southern California, which is where I'm from. And a lot of folks were trained, management folks especially back in those days, to kind of hire or keep the people that work for them to be not quite as knowledgeable and to not be as strong in terms of interpersonal skills so that they could kind of retain their job. Yeah. You know? and, 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 and that really was how, how I grew up in the 90s, seeing a so lot of So you were fighting against each other, essentially. Well, it's, it's that and trying to make sure that if they did a layoff or something like that, they would keep keep the leader and not, you know, the people that were doing the work. The leaders tried to protect themselves doing that mid, mid-level management. Right. And the company that I grew up in that time frame was a company called Zircon, which was re- eventually bought by Intel. Uh, and what we did is we hired the best people we could find and we hired people that played parts in, in, in as, as best as we could. And, you know, I, I basically made my career by hiring smarter people than me all the time. And I think that that is another another part of innovation is you talk about not being afraid to fail if you're a developer or any other kind of thinker. Uh, the leaders have to feel the same way. They have to not feel concerned that their job's in jeopardy because they hired somebody who's smarter than them. Everybody plays their part and leader the leader is their goal is to hire to find the best team possible and bring them along for the ride. You're gonna be much more successful in that case. Yeah, that that I've heard some of the greatest 
uh, business leaders in the world talk about that exact same thing that you hire people. Their key to success was was hiring people much smarter than they were, or at least they thought. <laughs> so well, it's really easy, like myself. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, now I know Carnegie has has a very international team, right? You have offices all over the world, developers, support staff in in almost every continent. Do you think that having that international team and bringing in perspectives from all over the world, do you think that helps create and or, or and foster that innovative culture or um you know, what do you see differently about innovation in different parts of the world, if anything? Well, I think it depends on what you're doing. I think it never hurts, right? Having, it's just like anything else, having more viewpoints and more varied ex- experiences and, and, you know, knowledge of what you're doing makes it makes a difference. Uh, but I think that depending on the product, it may not be necessary. Again, I don't think it hurts. I think it, it, sometimes it just happens to be convenient for, or maybe even important to the mission, whether that's I'm trying to find a lower cost implementer or I'm trying to target a product to a country that I'm not from. I want to find the, an innovator in that country. It, there's lots of different reasons for doing it. And I think you have to judge that for yourself. At Carnegie ourselves, we, we have it partly for convenience in terms of you know some of the things I mentioned where we're looking for cost advantages, but also it's partly as a target of innovation, understanding on the ground where our target customers are for some of our products um, what is really necessary to be successful. So it, it really is a, kind of a mixed bag. If you were targeting only a single country like the U.S., for example, um, having somebody overseas may or may not help you. Um, but it, it is kind of a loaded question in that, in that you know, it really does depend. But again, I think always I'd, I'd always err on the side of getting a lot of different uh, perspectives on problems you're trying to solve, especially if they're hard ones. Yeah. Now, Carnegie is doing lots of innovative things in the markets of mobility, satellite, IoT, um, even even the mobile marketplace. Can you talk a little bit about some of the really exciting new innovative things that Carnegie specifically is working on? Sure. I I think that uh, what's interesting about the, let's call it the DNA of Carnegie or part of the DNA of Carnegie is we like to take uh, take problems and look at those problems slightly differently, and either implement solutions that are you know ground up, new, or a combination of that, and maybe taking what I call the uh, the Reese's peanut butter problem, taking peanut butter and chocolate, and finding a way to take two things that may have been built for a slightly different purpose, putting them together, and creating some greater greater uh, total offering. Right. I was and just going to say, how can you go wrong, Peter? And I'm not, ironically, I don't like peanut butter, but in the, in the, for this what? metaphor, yeah, for this metaphor, it works okay. In any case, uh, we, we do that often at Carnegie. We have a mobility product offering that is just that. We have pieces that maybe were built at a different time for different things, and we've taken those together with our own our own new idea of how they would fit together nicely and created some interesting product offerings. Um, that's, that's, that can go everything from our link aggregation product, which is, you know, channel bond, some form of channel bonding has been around for a period of time. Um, taking a fresh look at how connection management should work in 2019 versus in, you know, 2010, maybe. I think that you'll see that uh, we've done a lot of interesting things in some commoditized markets. But then you flip it around the other way and you look at what we're doing in IoT. In IoT, it's just 
another one of those. It's the new cloud, as I call it, right? There's there's so many aspects to it. When you say you're doing IoT, that, that doesn't mean the same thing to everybody when they hear it until they understand what you're doing in it. We are primarily focused on industrial IoT, but what we're doing, it's a little bit different than most in the IoT space for our Longview platform, is we're actually building an entire end-to-end solution. Um, and most folks today are not doing that. They'll take pieces, they'll be a dashboard expert, or they'll be a, a data expert, or they'll build the hardware uh, you know, something along those lines. And they may offer or work with a, a reseller or integrator that will build a tire solution, but they don't own it end to end. And for us, we think that's key. The hard, we have, we have a software solution that does the provisioning. It does the data ingestion. It does the visualization, the alerting. It does everything. And we do it with our own hardware and we do it with other hardware. And I think that that is something that's a little bit different. And it's a big, it's a big goal. It's a lofty goal. Uh, but we, we believe that the payoff is going to be there because t- turning around and mechanizing things, which is what IoT is all about, that were not previously mechanized, uh, is a fun and interesting problem and requires lots of innovation. And it requires somebody to take that big leap to, to find a solution that's going to be very helpful and, you know, some line of business, uh, you know, as we go forward. So that's that's kind of uh, a couple of examples of what we're doing on the innovative side and, and what's different about Craigie. So that's interesting because when I think of innovation, I think of an idea, whether it be a product or a new service, that's completely revolutionary, right? Like when, when you think of innovation, you think of somebody like Elon Musk, who has these ideas and thought processes that are so far out there and sometimes think they're, we think they're so far into the future. But it doesn't always have to be like that, right? Because Carnegie isn't always reinventing the wheel or inventing the wheel from scratch, right? Carnegie often is just making that wheel run so much better and so much more efficiently. And that's that's an important distinction with innovation. You can have both, I think. I agree with you. I, I think that uh, I've been lucky enough to have been a part of both in my career where you do things that were kind of just revolutionary from the ground up. And I've also been involved in things like, like that, where you're taking something new and and old and and putting it together and, and kind of making things better. I mean, everything has gotten better, right? You, every everything that has a value to it over time, you find a way to do it a little bit better, a little bit cheaper, a little bit easier. But the, the way the way you can make a big uh, you know a big change in the world in some area is disruption, which is kind of what you're getting at with Elon Musk. I mean, he's a very disruptive thinker, right? He's trying to do things that, you know, are just very, they're very, very grand, but they're also very disruptive. Um, it's a really interesting book that I read a long time ago. I'm d- dating myself here uh, called uh, The Innovator's Dilemma by, uh, I can't remember the name. I think it's Christian, oh, I can't remember the name, but a uh, really interesting book. And what it talked about, and it sticks with me to this day, is the old U.S. steel industry and how the U.S. steel industry was selling high-grade, expensive steel. And to take that steel and try to do things that required things like rebar or light steel, you know, it was still really expensive. They were the only game in town until folks came in and realized overseas that, hey, we're going to go in and we're going to target just rebar. We're not going to build high-end steel. We're going to build just rebar. In order to do that, you have to be cheap. You have to have strong processes. You have to have a good way of building it cheaply and focused. Now, here's what happened. They went ahead and they did that, and they found that they could do it really cheap, and they found that as time went on, they started to win those deals. They could refine their processes and go up the chain and head towards the higher-grade steel. 
And lo and behold, they undercut the market. And, and that's another way of disrupting um, an existing market versus trying to just find that new unicorn or something that's never been done before. Interesting. Now, you talked about the book that that inspired you. Are you driven by competition personally and and in Carnegie in general throughout the top level management? Is the company driven by competition and seeing what others are doing and trying to figure out how to innovate beyond oh, absolutely. that? Oh, sorry. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that, again, going back to my athletics, I'm my, uh, my wife, my family, everybody will tell you I'm a little bit on the competitive side. I think you and, have to uh, be in entrepreneurism for sure, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And everything that I do, whether it's, you know, taking my eight-year-old and arguing with her about, uh, you know, you know wh- whether she spelled the word right or I spelled the word right, you know, any, any little thing all the way up to, to my work life. So from the work life standpoint, yeah, Carnegie is very competitive. That's why we're in the business. We're here to build things that are new. In some cases, we're leading a market, which is almost as hard as competing in one sometimes, trying to define new markets and and be the leading edge. But on the other end, sometimes in more of a commoditized markets, we are very we are dealing with lots of competition. And actually, I look at competition almost easier than dealing sometimes dealing in a new market, right? Because competition is really just a historical measuring stick. You have something in front of you that says, this is what we have, this is what it does, and this is what it costs. And sometimes it's all about, as I mentioned earlier, making something cheaper and better. Um, but sometimes you can take that peanut butter chocolate approach and build something a little bit different and handle more than one problem or handle it differently than somebody ever thought in the past. So competition is a good way of kind of setting yourself and, and setting goals to see if you can improve things. On the other hand, going into a new market, as I mentioned, using IoT as an example, mechanizing things, uh, putting asset trackers on things that have never been tracked before. And you're not talking about cars and trucks, but maybe people or maybe uh, at a micro site at, in a hospital or in a uh, construction site, etc. You know, the, the competition you have there is the people who would buy the technology not doing anything, right? So your comp- competition, you have to show value. And showing value for the first time in a new market is, 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 a, high, is a high watermark. You have to prove that, you know, you're doing this, you're taking risks that A, it's going to work. B, it's going to save you, save you money or generate you money. It's a very hard thing to do. So I think that at Carnegie, we are playing in markets that have both ends of that competition spectrum, no competition and competition. And it's, it's, it's a driving force behind what we do and why we try to bring new products to market. And there's an education process there too, right? Because a lot of times, you know, we were talking earlier about risk taking and, and not wanting to take risks sometimes. So when you have customers and they're being shown a technology that has a completely new application for them, they might be afraid to take that risk. Uh, Absolutely. And that's the difference between pull and push marketing, right? I mean, it's easy to build something. If you can build it cheaper and it works really well, it's going to fly off the shelf because it's been done before and and people need it. Pushing something in the market where they don't know they need it or they don't know if they have enough value to need it is a lot harder to do from a marketing perspective. Now, who are some of your role models in innovation and why? Oh, gosh. I have, I have a couple that come to mind. Uh, one is a, a gentleman named Leonard Kleinrock. If you don't know who that is, he's, he's one of the founders of the Internet, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, he's, he, uh, he actually is a UCLA professor for a very, very long time. Uh, and he, you know, he was one of the founders or fathers of packet switching, which is kind of what networking is 
based off of today. Now, there's a lot of historical arguments about who actually founded the internet. I was going to say, wasn't what. it Al Gore? I Man, I'll tell you what, if you ever, ever uh, would say that to Len, and I, I, was working, I was lucky enough to work for Len Kleinrock back in the, the early 2000s. I worked at a company called Nomadics, and uh, he was the chairman there. And is a great guy, by the way, one of the nicest people I've ever met and really smartest people I've ever met. How lucky but, are you to work for one of your role models in that's innovation? Why, that's, why, that's why I went there. And anyway, so he's a real brilliant guy. Uh, but if you would tell him that Al Gore, what wasn't Al Gore the founder of the internet or you know the information superhighway or whatever he claims to be, you could visibly notice the color in his face change. Uh, <laughs> I bet. I wouldn't think you would stop at that point if you were smart. But, um, <laughs> but, but actually, it's interesting you mentioned that because so, so you've got people like Len who, you know, really deep thinkers, deep innovators, kind of a visionary type folks, right? Building off other people's work maybe, but but definitely visionary and innovative. Um, and then there's other people, like uh, I use this example as a gentleman I've worked with at two different companies. His name is uh, Eric Henderson. He just, he was lucky enough, they, they he was working at a startup that I founded with somebody else. Uh, and we just, we just sold that startup. It's called M87. Uh, and, uh, Eric Henderson is one of those guys I've worked with in my career for probably over 15 years total. He is an implementer. So you say, oh, how can you be an implementer and be innovative? And you could talk about it. It is a unique, yes, it is a unique uh, skill set. It is. And, and uh, you know, well, the reason why I, I point to him, and he's a couple of years older than me, but I've worked with him for a long time. He, he really was a hard charger. He was somebody, so when you have these people who have the vision, Somebody needs to actually get you there, right? It's one thing to say we're going to go to the moon. It's another thing to actually get there. And uh, he was the kind of person who who could learn anything, and he could implement it, and he was also a refiner, right? He would take things. I say it like he's not here anymore. He still is. Uh, but, but in my experience with him, he would take things. He would build an architecture, and they, six months later, a year later, he realized that that no longer works. I need to rebuild it. So being innovative sometimes is about implementation, knowing that you need to redo something or you need to learn everything about something so you can actually implement it in the best way possible to think ahead for things that you know may be issues down the road that's just as key the implementation side is just as key to innovation uh, as is uh, the innovative and the visionary focus of it and that's what you're doing now for Carnegie correct you're you're in the implementation side yeah it's funny you said I, I a CEO now but I you know I, I my background obviously is software not obviously but my background is software. And I've spent most of my career doing just that. Uh, it's only in Carnegie and another company, you know, AT&T, this little company, uh, that I have focused more on the operational side. I guess I've always been more of the organized, uh, you know, a targeted approach problem solver uh, and enabling of other folks to succeed by keeping that direction and that, you know, and that goal always set in mind. So I wouldn't call that as much innovation as more as organization. Uh, but that's that's what I've done um, of, of late. And I'm guessing that that's what helps keep that innovative spirit alive throughout the organization. That helps, right? As as the operations director. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. One of the things that people, it may, it may not be obvious on the surface, uh, should it be some, but maybe not to others. You definitely, innovators don't, not most innovators want to see their product or their ideas in action. They don't want to just think about them uh, and, you know, contemplate their navel, so to speak. They want to actually see something go from an idea, a spark, if you will, to actually being something that people use and, and, 
and uh, consume. So if you don't have an engine to do that, or if you just have a bunch of great ideas and you sit in a think tank all day long, if you can't actually implement it, uh, what's the use in that, right? So I think that people will be surprised. That's a key component. When you hire folks, we hire folks at Carnegie, we have a really good mix of very experienced folks, very smart folks, very innovative folks. And we also have a bunch of implementers and operators and what that does is allows us to take the technologies and the things that we're innovating and building and actually get them to market. And we're right in the midst right now. It's a great time to be at Carnegie because we're right at that, that kind of that balance point where we've been a lot of innovation and in R&D over the last several years. And now we're moving more towards implementing it and moving it into production, if you will, and into the, into the, uh, the market. So it's, it takes both to make things happen and to keep it going. And then you move to the next thing, right? You, you, you may innovate for a while and you work on the next thing. So that's a key part of making people happy. You can't just put them in a room and pay them to think. Well, and that's the importance of the implementation team, right? Because it allows the visionaries and the innovators at the top of the company to sort of, I guess, relax on that idea, let the implementation team run with it, and then they're freed up to start innovating on the next, the next big thing as well. Yeah, it's, it, it depends on how, how you're organized, of course, but you know, you have software teams, hardware teams, uh, all kinds of development teams. Uh, and some of those folks are more on the R&D, true R&D side. Some of them are more on implementation, even in, in those disciplines. And then, and then once you get that all done, you have to move it into an operations and you, know, you have to put software into the cloud, for example, or hardware needs to be deployed on the ground. So there's different levels of implementation in each discipline, be it hardware, software, operations. Uh, and they're all key. And you're right. At some point, you, you get to work on the next thing. And that's exciting. Some people don't like to do that, but many do. And, and uh, so we have to, again, it gets back to that team idea of finding the right mix of people to do what you're trying to do. Well, I thrive on the startup side of things. So I, I'm absolutely attracted to companies that are constantly innovating and coming out with with new, exciting products and services. So um, that's, that's what I know I'm personally drawn to. Peter, is there anything else in innovation that you want to talk about today? No, I think that uh, you kind of covered most of the big points. I think the this, the key takeaway from all this is, uh, you know, innovation is not for everybody, but if you have a passion for it and you want to be a part of something different, whether it be, you know, going to the moon or whether it be uh, making uh, something that, that used to work in a traditional way, work in a more mechanized way, it doesn't matter if you want to do that, then that's an innovative type of mindset. So innovation is fun. It's exciting. And, and you just have to have the passion for it in order to, uh, you know, participate. Cool. Well, this was this was a great conversation today. And Peter, thank you for joining us. This was our inaugural episode of Carnegie Talks Tech. So thank you for being with us. Thanks, Bridget. <laughs>